Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I also am really delighted to announce that I have a brand new children's book. It's called Teddy's to the Rescue. You can learn more about all my books at my website, theclickercenter.com. And as always in these podcasts, I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Last week, we reached the milestone of our 250th episode. That seemed to me an astounding number of episodes to have produced. So to celebrate that event, we invited three of our regular attendees of the coaching sessions for my online clinics. I've been giving these clinics for, I think, roughly a year and a half now. And once a month, we get together and look at videos and of the work that they're doing with their horses. And it's been just a wonderful way to get together and to connect and to, to really share in training. And I always feel when we have these coaching sessions that there's so much more that I would love to talk about, discussions that I would love to have. So that's what we're doing this week. We're talking with Svenja Sobinski and Sonia Boyd, both from Germany, and Lucy Butler. You may remember the podcast we did with Lucy where we talked about using a constructional training approach with her high school students. Lucy got our conversation going with a question that arose during the last coaching session that boiled down to what is the difference between training where you're thinking about the science of training versus training where you're thinking about the art of training? Is there a difference and what is it? This question arose because, of course, we were focused on balance and we were talking about how we often reference the Feldenkrais training for people as we are thinking about how to help our horses use their bodies in a way that helps them to be better balanced and helps them to remain sounder longer. So we wanted to explore this in more depth, and this panel seemed like the perfect place to do that. Last week, we ended with a great summary from Svenja and a wonderful, wonderful closing statement from Sonia. We're going to open today's conversation with both of these comments. It's it's really more a conclusion. So while we were talking about micro, like where the weight is when we're starting to ask for the leg lift, that's very micro, right? And in the beginning, we would try to set the situation up in a way that makes it as easy as possible for the horse. So we'll have a look at how they are standing and then maybe ask for the leg where the weight is not on. But I think it's important that we keep in mind that then we also have to teach the same behavior with different preconditions. So like when you have your weight on that leg, you need to do something else before you lift this one up because it's not going to be possible. And that's exactly one of those things where I think it's, well, especially for Darian, for example, it's very, very helpful. So he, he's he got his stifle issues. And the the first thing I need to pay attention to is, does he have to rearrange his body to answer to any of my requests? Like backing up, for example, would be a really difficult one. And I would, depending on the day, I would click very early before the first step happens because I can see he rearranged his body and he got the right idea about what I was asking for. And then I'll click. And then for the next repetition, I would wait a little longer, but I will not every time ask for three steps. It's that's that's not what I'm doing. But what I was thinking about while I was listening to you was this reminds me of the generalization. So when we're talking about there's one situation where I teach my horse a behavior, I cannot expect that horse, even if that's a very, very safe behavior that we've done a million times at home in the arena, I cannot expect 
that to be something the horse can do when I'm outside and there's something scary going on. So I have to generalize in different situations that it's still the same behavior I'm asking for, but it's different preconditions that I'm looking at. And when we're looking at this through Feldenkrais eyes, I think that's just a micro generalization we're looking at. Like we're looking at a body in a different precondition. And then somehow out of that condition, I need to get into the movement I want to do. And sometimes that's possible and sometimes it's not. So I, that's that was just an idea I got listening to you. Open your heart and open your mind and love your pony. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> you don't have to be perfect. It's always good to to train and to to improve and I, of course i want to to make wincy healthy and take him through good through his life but i and i think he wants that too i want to have fun with him i i want to jump into that healthiness part because what so we were talking about farrier appointments and when i do a lot of Feldenkrais like work it's a lot easier for Darian to stand for his hooves being trimmed and you may think that it has to do with I don't know muscles because they're standing on three legs or like body exercise but it's not it's about knowing how to place their body in space to be able to hold a leg up and have that balance where they have the least actually like exercise in their muscles right and I know that the more I work with him the more balanced he's standing the faster we are able to trim his feet and I especially know that because we have not been doing anything for the last three months the hoof trimming appointments were horrible for all of us and he's still a well-behaved horse but he can't stand on his legs And it's really, really difficult for him. So so it's a lot about knowing what to do with your body and less about being fit. But it also makes you really healthy. We can demonstrate that really easily through the body awareness explorations that we do with people. So if I have you, if I say, all right, I want everybody to stand up. And if you're not driving a car, if you're listening to this, you could actually do it. You could stand up. And I would have you take a moment to just do a check-in, a body scan of how comfortable or not are you standing. And for many people, just standing is hard. They find it very fatiguing very quickly. You're looking around for a wall to lean up against or a chair to sit down in. But standing for any length of time, we all know that it can be really fatiguing. So, all right, that's the starting point. So now we're going to go through a series of very simple explorations. I'm not going to tell you the answer. I'm going to set up a situation where you get to explore in small movements. So these are standing exercises. They are evolved, derived somewhat from Feldenkrais work and some other sources as well. But I will have you explore really small movements. I'll have you explore them slowly. Might start with your feet absolutely together. And then we'll look at stepping out to the side, shoulder width apart, feet parallel. You step back again and have you roll up onto the balls of your foot and set your foot down. And it's a whole series of these. And after we spend a few minutes, I'll have you again pause, just standing. And what you will find, what often people will find is they feel as though they could stand forever. They feel very grounded because now their bones are stacked. Their bones are aligned. They're not having to use extra muscle, muscular effort to keep themselves standing. And it feels very doable and very comfortable to stand still and to bend their joints. Now, this has occurred over what, 20 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever it is, you haven't gotten stronger. You haven't 
you know, your muscles have not suddenly in that 20 minute period, you haven't strengthened your muscles and strengthened your core, but you've aligned your bones in a way that makes it possible to stand with comfort and to flex your joints and to pick up a foot, even to stand on one foot and go, oh, look at that. I can stand on one foot without trying to find the nearest back of a chair to lean against. So it is very much what we are doing is setting up awareness puzzles. We are not providing the answer. We are setting up puzzles. And those puzzles allows the learner, whether it's horse or human, to explore their balance and find a way of using their body that produces greater ease of movement, greater comfort of movement. And that in turn helps them to remain sounder longer. And that's been the core premise of my work since the very beginning. And that's what Peregrine taught me so clearly. So Dominique, what what do you want to throw into the mix? Yeah, just a little tip that I've used for myself that has helped me get better at identifying what comes before what comes before is use your camera and put it at an angle opposite of where you're working. Meaning, let's say you're working in the front, put your camera straight in the back, filming the back legs while you're working on the front legs or vice versa. Because you're gonna see things that you cannot see when you're working on the front legs and that are part of that movement. And for me, because I was working on something that was totally, doesn't matter what exercise I was working on. And I I did that because it was important for me to know what the back legs were doing while I was asking, I was asking some crossing of the legs in the front. And that has helped me a lot to get better at seeing what comes before. Because I saw it, you know, I saw it when I watched the video afterwards, I thought, oh, look at this. And then I became better at saying, okay, now he's going to do this. I know he's going to do this. I know where his weight is. And yeah. Yeah, because we cannot see all of our horse. They're too big. When you're working at the horse's front end, you're seeing the front end. You're seeing part of the horse. You're not seeing the hindquarters. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can feel what's going on in the hindquarters, or you know because this moved, that had to have moved in the hindquarters. So the camera becomes like your assistant teacher. Yes, (laughs) yes, very definitely, very definitely. And it is very much about learning how to set up puzzles and then give your learner time to solve the puzzle. I'll just share a quick experience that have stuck in my mind for a very, very long time. So when I was first starting to teach, I was really lucky. I had a client who was an Alexander practitioner and she had also studied some Feldenkrais work and some other things as well. And we did trades. So she worked on me and I worked on her horse. And we learned from one another. It was a great, great exchange. And one day we were doing a bodywork session and she was manipulating my arm. So she's moving my arm through space and I'm lying on my side. And at one point, so my arm is, she's, she's moving in in circles and so on. And at one point she just stopped and let go of my arm. And my arm was up in the air away from my side, and it just stayed there, which I thought was really curious because gravity would normally take care of that. You know, she let go of my arm, my arm should go clunk down to my side, only it didn't, it stayed up there. And I was looking at this, going, it's really curious. And, and she said, so, so what could you release? What could you find that would allow your arm to drop down to your side? And I thought, I have no idea because I don't know why it's up there. Mm-hmm. No. So I don't know why what to release because I have no idea why my arm 
has not already dropped down via gravity. Why it's staying up there? And I had to sort of think for a little bit of what was going on and what could I find that would allow my arm to just settle down against my side. And she could have moved my arm down. So that would be like horse training. Oh, well, let me just move it for you. She could have given me the answer. She might, she could have said something like, how about breathe or, you know, something like that. But she didn't. She gave me the space to explore and find the answer. And one of the things that I have said a lot is, you know, the answer is always obvious to the one who knows it. No. And that when you when you tell somebody else the answer, yeah, they, yeah, I could put my arm down. She told me to breathe, but I might not own the answer. So the next time, it's not going to occur to me. Now, how did how did I solve that puzzle last time? It's still going to be a mystery. So what we're doing with the horses is we're treating them like intelligent beings, like the intelligent beings that they are, and we're saying oh, we've encountered a puzzle. I've asked you to shift your balance and pick up your foot, but for whatever reason, something stuck today. When I asked you to back up, I encountered a stickiness. I encountered a feeling of resistance, a feeling of, I can't do that. And rather than push through it, which would also be a horse training way of doing things, well, let me just push you back. Or throwing up my hands and going, oh, you know, you're, you just, you can't back up. Or, you know, some of the other answers. I'm going to have the confidence that I've set up this puzzle. I've gone to this point of contact. And I'm not pushing in with an energy that is going to make you brace against me or make it in any way have you push back. But instead, I'm giving you the space and the time to find the answer. That's, Sonia, like that wonderful video we have of that of the Arabian you were working with, where you were sliding up to that point of contact and just waiting quietly for a weight shift. And you're allowing the space, the time, for him to solve. And it's a tiny puzzle. It's not the whole puzzle. We're not asking him to put the whole jigsaw puzzle together all in one step. It's just, can you solve this one tiny little piece of the puzzle? Balance. So you know how very often something you love to do. You take a horse at the beginning of a clinic and then you show us pictures later. Look at him day two, day three, how much better he's standing. He's not being standing as higgledy piggledly yes. as he was when the when the clinic started. So you love to show us this progression of how with time the horse is standing in a better balance. But balance is something you find and something you lose. Yes. And you guys have been saying since the start of the podcast, your starting point today may be different than your starting point yesterday. And so you show me this picture of a horse day three, but it can very much be true that in that session where he's standing much better than in the first session, he's going to again start to not start, he's going to again stand in a higgledy piggledy. Yeah. <laughs> trying to get, I'm trying yes. to get good at pronouncing this. <laughs> such a technical term. It is such a technical term. But just to say that, so because balance, I guess, is it's not necessarily this linear no. evolution. So how do you 
how does it all work? You know, you're getting better, but it's also possible that in that session, I could show you after you've showed me a very wonderful picture of the horse standing better, maybe 30 seconds afterwards, he's standing like not so well. Right. So the, ex the, ex the expression is even Olympic athletes fall off the balance beam. Mm -hmm. So we are not expecting perfection. We're not expecting perfection all the time. But what begins to happen is the individual becomes more and more aware of its own balance and becomes better and better at getting back up on the balance. Dominique, what I'm trying to do is I'm filming sessions, right? So what I'm trying to look at is I'm looking at the progression or the number of repetitions that look better or closer to the picture I want to see than the ones before. So what I, I don't know, there's always on Facebook, for example, there are always pictures going around with, you know, where you have the horse from the side and then someone draws lines inside and this is what it's supposed to look like. And then you can have analytics on like, how the muscle balance inside your horses and all those kind of things. And I used to do that too. Like I was putting my horse into an even place and I was taking pictures like once a month so I could see whether he was progressing or not. And I've actually stopped to do that because what I, so what I now do is I regularly pick videos and I go through the videos and I'm looking at, various repetitions of that behavior where I want to see has it improved or not. So I kind of take a sample and look at does does the mean of the sample has that shifted in my feeling. So it's not a scientific analysis that I'm doing, but it's an overall feeling where I can afterwards say, okay, actually he's standing a lot more square than he ever did before. Mm -hmm. And that is what I can also see inside of a session. And I think that's also what Alex is usually doing when she's looking at videos yeah. from one day to another, she will go through the video and she will not pull the best picture of the day. But what she'll do is she'll pull an average one for that day and then say, okay, this this average one, this looks better than the average one from, from day one. And that's, yeah, that's a little bit different from picking that one moment because you're totally right. The next fault could be very different from, from the perfect last one. I remember, I think it was probably the first video that I looked at of Darian and he's just walking and, and he's walking and then he stops and walks and stops. Every time I pulled a still frame of how he was standing after he stopped, he was out of balance every mm -hmm. time. It was very consistent. And mm -hmm. then you did some work with him. And every time I pulled a still frame, he was standing over himself. And that was just after a couple of, uh, you'd worked a couple of sessions with him within the clinic format, it was a Zoom format. And so there was a dramatic change in his balance at that point. I just want to say what I also notice is we're not, most of the time we're looking at the process and we're yes. looking at the exercises we're doing. So it's not that I can say he every time he stops, he's standing better than he did two years ago. But that's really, that's an inside of a session. And I'm looking at the exercises I pick rather than the picture in, I don't know, halting that yes. I want to have. And that's an important piece too, because well, especially talking about Feldenkrais, and I know I've mentioned that before, it's not about having the perfect outside picture. It's about having the right feeling and training the right movement, even if it's just the start of a movement and it's not three steps, it's just half a step or it's it's the initiation of the right thing to do because then on a good day, the overall picture is going to be really nice. Yes. So... Yeah, so not being so outcome-oriented is something I really take away. Yeah. So, Lucy, go ahead. 
Yeah, the comment that you often remind us about, you know, even the Olympic gymnast loses their balance sometimes. It's really helpful. And it makes me think of a, I saw it was a art piece. It was a, like a performance art piece once with this woman who wanted to hang a, if you've ever seen those balance lines, they're like a slack line that people run between two fixed points and there's simply a piece of rope and then they tightrope walk on it. So she wanted to do a piece where she hung a balance line directly on, she lived on the ocean and it was directly on the water. So when she filmed herself, it would look as though she was walking right on the water, but she didn't know how to do, she was not a trapeze (laughs) artist. She was not a tightrope walker. She had to learn to do it. And her piece ended up being about discovering balance through relaxing with being out of balance. And she discovered that the more she got up tight about maintaining balance and trying to freeze it as something, she was actually getting further away from the skill, which was learning to relax into the ebb and flow. And that there's actually so much more fluidity in it because of the movement of the rope, the movement of her body. And it was a felt experience. You know, what Svenja was just saying is this felt experience in the body that eventually what she started to learn was closer and closer to when she was coming out of it, how to relax and just come back and find her way back. And I really feel like I've watched Rowan over the years, the more we just do multiple mats because she simply loves it, the more I will be you know, walking down the lane next to the turnout and I will see her standing perfectly square. And she never did that. And now it's just something that I think has become more and more comfortable in her body. And it's not that she doesn't get higgly piggly from time to time, but she finds her way back to square so much more consistently so that there's like a, almost like a river or a fluidity to it. And if more of the (laughs) direction of the river is towards balance, then you know there we are of a a graphic I don't know how you would describe in English but you know when you have a a graphic there are some downs but the overall tendency is going up yes what how do you call this like like a a, a, the word in French is down the sea it's like you can regress a little bit but overall the tendency is is where you we're going that way Like a trend line, maybe? Like you have a trend line that goes up? It's like the the stock exchange. (laughs) where You you may have uh, some some shares that will go down a little bit, but overall, if you look over a longer period, it has gone up. So it makes me think of a graph like that. It's less poetic than what you just said. (laughs) It's another image. Different images may speak to different people. But the ebb and flow is, is, I think, a really important image to have and the idea that it's not this fixed thing that you're trying to grab hold of and hold on to because the more you try and turn it into that it's like the uh, we talk about gives and a give is a little thing not a big thing and you're talking about like a give of the pole or give of the jaw it's a fleeting moment that you are capturing with a click or that you're capturing with the release of a lead it's a fleeting moment you're not trying to hold on to it. You can't hold on to a soap bubble or you shouldn't hold on to a butterfly. You know, there are things you should not hold on to. And that moment of release into good balance, it is something you can you can appreciate, you can acknowledge, but you don't hold it. Mm. And you see the result of it over time. I'm always looking at my horses and how they're standing. And for the most part, I'll see that they're standing over themselves. You have that standing square look. And when they're standing, say, a little camped out or a little higgledy-piggledy, I make note of it. I pay attention to what are they doing with their backs today? And I make note of that because, you know, maybe they for whatever reason, they had an uncomfortable night or it's cold and they've been hunched up in their back. You know, something is affecting them in a way that is shifted out of their normal look. And is this something that I need to pay attention to? Let me just monitor it. I, I just like that you're saying you're, you're mainly monitoring it. You're not trying to fix it. 
Right. And the reason why I like that is because we could teach, like we have the tools to teach our horses to stay square or to stand square yep. every time they, they stop. Like we could teach them that. And I know there is criticism about also when you're traditionally training your horse that you shouldn't teach your horse to, you know, every time you're halting, to put their legs into a square stand because the square stand is kind of a result of the balance while stopping and of the balance of the movement that was before stopping the movement. So it's an indicator of something that is going on around stoppings. And I think it's really important to take this as information rather than, well, it was not the perfect behavior I wanted to have. And I think that also goes for leg lifts, for example. And, you know, just asking for more and more instead of looking at the process of lifting a leg or the process of halting. It's the, And that's, for me, that's very actually relaxing. It takes pressure off me because now I do not have to look at my horse in a way that they always have to be in that perfect behavior that I want to click because every session needs to improve right. but that I can look at okay what is possible today it's kind of a, a shaping session every session that I do with the same behavior it's again a shaping session because I can always click for the right idea and even if I don't reach the full picture I'm still building that upwards trend or that highway in the brain that makes yes. it more likely to happen next time even though I didn't have the full behavior that's really relaxing for me because now I do not have the pressure of always waiting for that perfect moment that might not be as perfect tomorrow as it was <laughs> yesterday so for me that's that's really nice oh definitely and with Peregrine, he, with his stifles, and he did not have a strong back. And I would look at him, particularly when I'd been away traveling to a clinic, and I would have been away for five days. And often when I would get back to the barn, his back would look old to me. His back would have dropped. And I would know that I would need to do a lot more preparation before I just got on and rode and expected him to be able to give me a really great feel. And I would know that just from looking at him and assessing how he was holding himself. And then if I were home for a few days, I would see that his back would be more lifted. He would be standing better. He would look more comfortable in his body. And when I got on to ride, I would feel his back coming up to meet me and that we could go to work much more quickly with the things that we wanted to play with rather than spending the entire time in what might be classed as warm-up exercises. And all of that I could judge just by looking at him. And then that also helped me manage my expectations because of course I wanted to get on and go straight to all those wonderful, glorious, delightful feels that came when he was feeling really good. And if I wasn't prepared to say, well, today we may need to do a little bit more prep, I could get really frustrated. You know, why aren't you giving me that glorious feel? It was there last week. <laughs> I want it now. I want it back. Give it to me. Let me demand it from you. And it's not the way that's not the way the world works. So it does help us, I think, to manage our expectations as we get in the habit of really looking at our horses, seeing them as individuals, being so familiar with them that we can say, where are you today? And what would be a good starting point for our conversation? So I made a note of something you wanted to talk about if you're ready to change gear. That would be good. Okay, so you wanted to talk about the difference between building a clean loop and drilling an exercise. My first thought when you say that, Dominique, is that a lot of what we've just talked about, it really, really relates to that. You know, like I think drilling is a lot about 
your end result. And it starts from a place of expecting there's something more rote and mechanistic about it than everything we've just talked about, which is so much more fluidity and spaciousness around it that allows something to emerge. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it, that drilling would be more outcome oriented. I'm going to go into the arena and I'm working on leg flexions. I will do five leg flexions on the left and five leg flexions on the right. And yes, I want them to be clean loops, but it would have that outcome oriented aspect to it. And everything that we have been talking about of really listening to our learner, allowing our learner to change us, to change what we are asking for, to evaluate, you know, what is a clean loop changes moment to moment to moment. And that right now, my criterion may be, can you present the thing that comes before the thing that comes before the outcome that I would love to have. Can you give that to me? Yes, click and treat. Can you give it to me again? Can we stay focused on that little detail? Yes, now, oh, look, and because we did that, this next little piece is popping out. That doesn't seem like drilling to me. That seems like a conversation. I'm not sure if my problem is in, in English wording, uh, because, but I still think it's an interesting way to look at how we work with our horses. And it's again, coming back to what we talked about in the beginning with coming with a fixed mindset of what we want to do versus having a look at what is today's mood and what does my horse want to do, even if it's not as large as, okay, I have four stations and maybe we can choose moving in between them, but this coming into the stable and having the mindset of, okay, today I'm going to work on turns or on halts or on Piaf or, or whatever. And I think that's something that often happens, at least in the stables that I was boarding in, in the past, that there is a certain, you know, there's an exercise you have to perfect, or there's something you need to work on before the next competition day, or there's something, I don't know, you want to learn with your horse. So for me, that was, I really wanted to be able to do shoulder in with my horse. And I never reached that point, but that was, I don't know, I would even go into riding lessons and say, this is exactly what I want to work on. And I'm not sure if I would have been flexible enough unless the teacher would have been able to explain that to me, how something else would lead into what I wanted to do. And I think that's still something people come into the stable with, like a fixed mindset of this is what we're working on. Even if it's, I don't know, targeting or or whatever, you want to do exactly that. And then there's no compromise. You just drill that exercise. Yeah versus yeah looking at what is possible but then I think so for me it becomes easier to not think about drilling something when I'm looking at really movement exploration so when I really get back to the basics of what I like the six foundation lessons, for example, I think they are a really good way to start into clicker training. But I also think they come with a certain image of what they are supposed to look like, what the end picture is going to look like. And they are more like the more you get to know about clicker training, the more you get to know about all of the details and mm. how you can find them and all the various other exercises you have. But in the beginning, you're starting out with this is what we're going to do. And I, yeah, that, not to say that is drilling, but it could have the side effect of going somewhere with that fixed mindset of this is what it's supposed to look like. And that's what we're doing. We um, can certainly bring in our lifetime of experience coming from school and so on of saying, oh, here's six behaviors. Let me do a checklist. I asked my horse to back up three steps. Yep, check that one off. Now oh, yeah. Do it three, four times, and I've succeeded for that today. And now I'm going to go into 
grownups are talking. Let me see. I need five seconds of grownups are talking. Click and treat. It could turn into a very drilled type of training lesson instead of a conversation that could easily happen, you know, where we bring our previous repertoires of having been drilled through things in the learning process to the training. And and again, I, I was starting out like that. And the teachers I had in the beginning with clicker training really, you know, it's, you can be outcome oriented, even working with positive mm-hmm. reinforcement. Absolutely, you can. Yeah. I mean, there's being outcome oriented versus process oriented has nothing to do with whether you're using positive or negative reinforcement, whether you're cue based or command based. It's you can absolutely be totally outcome oriented with positive reinforcement. Something Svenja said brought this up in my mind, but thinking about like clean loops, trying to, to suss out what that is maybe in a process oriented lens. To me, it has something to do with the conversation we were having about how the horse becomes better at finding their way to whatever state they need to be in. And the handler finds better and better ways, clearer and clearer communication for finding that cue. So a clean loop, the cool thing about a clean loop is that in the process that we're talking about, if it's truly process oriented, is it's just constant refinement of those clean loops. So maybe it's really like a clean spiral, you know, you're constantly coming back around and refining that. And that's the amazing thing about not being stuck in a product oriented or an outcome oriented mindset. If you're in an outcome oriented mindset, once you've hit that outcome, it's a bit rigid. You now have the outcome and there's less possibility for making it even better you know, and you can't even picture it in your mind because you have that one picture, you know, four or five years ago, when I started doing this with Rowan, I was happy and had a clean loop for grownups. And I was like, yeah, you know, it was great. And if I look back at it now, I'd be like, oh, (laughs) that's okay. Because right now I'm saying, yeah, it's great. And I'm clicking and treating and my horses think it's great. And, you know, in a couple months, that clean loop is going to be a totally different Right. Clean loop and all of it seems to be upward. So, you know, at least if I'm checking in with Alex, they're upward. Yeah. <laughs> because you not. can do this, it is opening doors that allows you to do the next piece. Yeah, I've been doing lots of leg flexions with Robin recently, and we've now shifted and it's opened the door for working on another layer in that's really fun. And because we did that other unit, it's now opened the door to being able to explore this piece. And that's part of that upward spiral. In case someone's kind of new to all this and they're hearing us, we keep talking about being process-oriented versus outcome-oriented. just want to make the distinction between our goals and our strategy to get there. Because we still have outcomes that we want to reach. Yes. You know, one of the things we've been saying when we describe the constructional approach is where do you want to go is one of the first questions and dream big. So yes. it doesn't mean that we're not after outcomes. It's just our strategy to get there is not outcome oriented. It's just how we get to the outcome because you know, like when you're saying, well, you want to get your horse on a trailer, don't work on the trailer, go work somewhere else. And don't think about the outcome when you're developing your strategy to get to the outcome. So just wanted to make the distinction in case someone says, well, these people, they never get their outcomes. They don't want to get their outcomes. It's not true. We do. But it's just how we get there. I think especially since we've been talking about balance, one of the easiest ways of thinking about the process versus the outcome when we and we talked about movement cycles and the movement cycle is a series of behaviors which are performed one after the other and they have a distinct beginning and and an end and a movement cycle is complete when you're in position to repeat the cycle where we start in the training is we look at the initiation in the movement we look at 
the initiation into the start of the movement cycle. And often what our life experience teaches us is to look at the end of the movement cycle. So for example, we want a horse to take a step. It doesn't matter whether it's forward or back, we'll we pick a direction. Let's say we want a horse to take a step forward. And this is a horse that's a little bit on the stuck side. So we slide down the lead rope, let's say, and we ask for the horse to go forward. And we are clicking as the foot lands because we have now seen that the horse has taken a step. So we've looked at the outcome of a whole lot of things that occurred in that horse's body that resulted in that foot going forward and landing on the ground in front of it. And what we want to say is let's start at the beginning of the movement cycle. So we're looking at what comes before the thing that comes before the thing that comes before. So you slide up that lead rope and you see the horse begin to shift his balance or you see a contraction of muscle in his chest. And you know that is going to result in his being able to lift up his foot and take a step forward. And so we're going to begin to pay attention to the beginning of the movement cycle rather than the end of the movement cycle. Lucy, I can't say how much I love that spiral picture in my head enough. Maybe this is just different words for you, for what you just said, Alex, or what we already talked about. But when I'm thinking about talking about drilling versus the loops again, so when I'm drilling, I'm training this whole whole target picture of my movement already. And I actually don't have a way to improve that anymore. It actually gets stuck in the same kind of repetition, more or less, again and again and again. And I, I just realized that listening to you explaining what is taking a step like, so when the initiation of a step, like the relaxation in the joints before the horse lifts their foot, that is a place where I can actually still influence the later movement that I want to have. Do I want to have just a step forward or do I want the horse to lift the leg higher up maybe? Or like I can still influence it there by shifting yes. my criteria to the moment. But when I only look at the foot falling to the ground and clicking then and having the whole loop of that movement completed, there I'm kind of stuck. I'm not spiraling upwards anymore. Or it becomes very, very difficult to get a step upwards instead of using that ramp that spirals up. Yes. Yes. Um, and I and I think this this picture is really, really cool, Lucy. Because yes, it's not, we're not coming back to exactly the same starting point again. I can initiate the movement again, but it's not exactly the same way it was before. It has actually shifted. And what I'm looking at is this rhythm. It's not, it's not, I'm repeating push-ups. I don't know. So, so maybe just different words, but I thought that this was a really, really nice image. Yes, a spiraling image adds sort of three-dimensional, very alive aspect to the idea of clean loops. Very much so. So I'm beginning to think that we've done a, a series of loops. We have looped around and looped around and looped around, and we have talked wonderfully about balance. And I could not be more delighted that for our, the podcast that is marking the milestone of our 250th episode, that the conversation has been about balance. What could be more appropriate and delightful than that? And how perfect that it's about body awareness and balance and clean loops and basically my favorite subjects. I have really enjoyed the fact that we have marked this particular milestone by talking about balance. And it has been great fun sharing with all of you and that you have contributed wonderfully to a very interesting conversation 
And so I thank you all for being part of this milestone. We shouldn't um, wait for 250 to do it again. We should do it again soon. Yes, yes, definitely. So we'll, we'll, I'm sure we will find some good excuses to get back together again soon because it has been a, a really delightful afternoon. So I thank you all and have fun with your horses. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and sharing in our celebration of reaching the milestone of 250 episodes. Of course, this is now episode 251, so we're on our way to episode 500. We were in the middle of a conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter when I interrupted in order to mark this milestone. So next week, we're going to be jumping back into that conversation with an exploration of some basic definitions. We'll be looking at words we use all the time, both in training and behavioral analysis. We use them, but do we know what those words really mean? And one of the questions that we're going to be looking at is, can we really talk to one another? Or do we mean such different things when we use these terms as trainers compared with how a behavioral analyst might use the term, that we just end up talking across purposes and confusing one another? That's for next week. And as always, as you've seen from this panel discussion, if you want to become more involved in these training conversations, do check out my online clinics. You can learn more about them on my website, theclickercenter.com. They're a great opportunity to become part of a really wonderful training community. And while you're there, do visit Bear Hollow Press. That's a new section in my website that will introduce you to my new children's book, Teddy's to the Rescue. And if this is the first time you're hearing anything about that, absolutely do check out my website. And now all that's left is to say, train well and have fun with your horses.